world's too big, Mom. Then make it small. Focus on my voice. Pretend it's an island out in the ocean. Can you see it? I see it. My son was in the bus. He saw what Clark did. You have to keep this side of yourself a secret. What was I supposed to do? Just let him die? Maybe. I have so many questions. Where do I come from? have to decide what kind of man you want to grow up to be, Clark. Whoever that man is, he's going to change the world. And welcome to Superman Forever Radio, episode 66. I'm your mild-mannered host, J. David Weeder. This week we begin the first of a four-part look at the 12-issue miniseries, Superman Birthright. This was a retelling of Superman's origin for the 21st century. First, a quick apology for not having an episode last week. Truth is, when it came down to the final edits, the score wouldn't line up, my voice was hoarse and weak, and it just sounded terrible, so I'm very, very sorry for that. But we are here this week, and we are looking at the first two oversized issues of Birthright. And I know some of you loyal listeners caught that I was originally going to do this as a three-part episode, now it's four. Basically, it's for length purposes. My notes for the issues were a bit lengthier than what you would find on an average episode. And of course, we're going to have an episode of Superman the Animated Series featuring both the Parasite and Livewire returning. Now also, because of the length, I'm going to start really quickly and just jump right into this. Very little preamble this time. I'm going to start talking a bit about Mark Wade, the writer of this series. 
Wade started out as an editor for DC and then moved into the underrated Impact Comics line of books, writing the comic. That would be where I first encountered him. His defining run, the one that put him really on the map, came on The Flash, writing Wally West's adventures and introducing the aneurysm-inducing hypertime. From there, he wrote the widely acclaimed run on Captain America, alongside artist Ron Garney, that was, sadly, interrupted by Heroes Reborn. Wade continued to earn praise on projects like Kingdom Come, Irredeemable and Incorruptible. Wade is well-known for his encyclopedic knowledge of superhero lore, and specifically Superman. In fact, there is a part of the book, The Krypton Companion from Tomorrow's Publishing, in which a roundtable of Superman creators and so-called experts are asked who is the most knowledgeable about Superman, and in unison they all agreed and looked at Mark Wade. Yet, beyond a few fill-in issues and a run on JLA that included the excellent Tower of Babel story, Wade was never given an extensive run on a mainstream Superman title. In fact, the Superman 2000 or Superman Now pitch that he crafted with Grant Morrison and Mark Millar was passed on by DC. But let's speed ahead a few years later when DC approached Wade to write a non-canon standalone retelling of Superman's legend, his origin. Suddenly, Mark Wade was in full control of the Man of Steel and without that pesky continuity to contend with. He had a wide and open road to do a fully updated Superman story. That story became the 12-issue series Birthright, regarded by some as an opus, by others as a travesty. But at least there were strong, strong divided opinions. While it was meant to be standalone, the response the series elicited from fans led DC to make the series canon, at least for a short time, until Infinite Crisis and Secret Origin took the post of the official origin. This made Birthright the first retroactive origin reboot since John Byrne rewrote Superman's origin in The Man of Steel. Now, as for Wade himself, I've always been taken by not just his writing, but his fandom. It is a true fandom. In fact, he's not someone who is in this field just for the money. He is a true fan. And the thing that always stuck with me was a quote from the DVD Countdown to Wednesday, which was a movie that talked about breaking into comics. But they were talking to Wade about uh, basically how he approaches stories. And he was talking specifically about The Flash issue number zero. And there was a quote that always stuck with me, and it just colored how I viewed him and the sheer joy that he takes in writing these characters. So I'm going to play that quote for you now. When I wrote Flash number zero, it sort of started when... Uh, it really was a, it was a story of him meeting his younger self at age like 10 or 11. And sitting down and sort of giving him... The, the advice he didn't you know he didn't know who this older self was the little kid is just knows that some relative who sort of looks like him but it's a big family reunion and we don't know who any of the, the kid doesn't know who the aunts and uncles are and stuff so he just sees this guy come in and so Wally as an adult is able to sit down with his younger self and essentially say look don't worry about the crappy life you've got right now because you have a really craptacular life with bad parents and so forth someday it's all going to work out for you and that was enough to sort of get him sort of jump-started into having hope for the future. Um, it meant a lot to me because where it really came from was I grew up in Alabama, in rural Alabama, and I was driving through a little before I wrote the stories, driving through an old hometown. hadn't been back there for a while. And I stopped at the house that I lived in when I was about 9 or 10 years old. hadn't been there, again, in you know, 10, 20 years. 
And I just kept walking around the house. Nobody was home. I was kind of walking around the yard and stuff. And getting that real rush of, you know, hey, I write comic books for a living. You know, I have a really great job that I never would have dreamed in a million years that I could have aspired to as a kid. And there was the one moment when I was just walking around the house and I would have given anything in the world, anything, to have just been able to walk in the back and find like a 10-year-old Mark Wade back there and be able to say to him, don't worry, you know, don't let anything get to you, don't be scared, don't be worried about the future because I promise you that someday everything you ever wanted will come true. So there you have it from his own mouth. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to wait to take a podcast promo until a little bit later and I'm going to jump in directly with Birthright, issue number one. Birthright number one was cover dated September 2003, but you would have found this on stands on July 2nd of the same year. We have a cover penciled by Lynn L. Francis Yu and Gary Allen Guilin. The title of the first issue story is simply Birthright, written by Mark Wade, penciled by Lynn L. Francis Yu, inked by Gary Allen Guilin, lettered by Richard Starkings, colored by Dave McCaig, and edited by Eddie Berganza. A rocket greets us as it speeds away from a planet on the brink of an explosion. Green meteor fragments, pieces of the dying world, pass alongside the yellow craft, lit by the ship's nose, a clear floating orb. The ship climbs higher and higher, freeing itself from the atmosphere as the planet itself crumbles into oblivion, taking a great civilization with it. A mechanical voice calls out, System alert! Velocity insufficient to counter the gravity of the sun. Star drive failing and the ship, reflecting the red sunlight, keeps pushing harder and harder, but in the end, it is futile, as it plunges directly into the sun and is engulfed in the flames. The steel-blue eyes of Jor-El watch the tests with desperation as he tries new trajectories for the ship, new settings, but again and again, he meets with failure. He takes his wife, Lara, into his embrace, along with their baby, Kal-El. With a sunken heart, he declares that their plight is hopeless. He had tried to warn them about the building pressure at Krypton's core, but his claims, his suggestions to build a fleet of Starcraft to escape the Doom Planet, they were all placed on under-advisement status by Krypton's ruling council. But this ship, the tests, all of it is Kal-El's only chance for survival, the one slim hope that the baby can reach a planet where he will thrive. But Jor-El fears that Kal-El could die out there, in the void of space, all alone and suffering. Laura has no choice but to believe that their child will have a future, beyond the dying planet, beyond them and their imminent deaths. Jorel reflects on the dying planet, a world that grew tired of war, advanced, conquered the unknown through the marvels of science, a society that accomplished miracles that no one will remember. There is a moment of sad silence, and Laura asks Jorel to put a tablet computer into the ship. This contains holograms chronicling Krypton's entire history, and baby Kal-El is wrapped in red and blue flags that Lara rips down from the walls, one bearing a pentagonal symbol for the planet Krypton, resembling the letter S. And suddenly, there is a telling, terrible rumbling across the planet, and the elves know, without a doubt, the end is here. 
Jor-El falters for just a moment, unsure if he can do what he must. Can he send his only son into the unknown? Lara strengthens him. Kal-El needs not their science, but their courage. Frantically, Jor-El plots a new course for the ship. A long shot, but an environment that will sustain the baby. In fact, should he make it to the atmosphere, the yellow sun radiation will not only shield him, he will make him strong and make him that world's man of tomorrow. Jor-El kisses his son tenderly on the forehead and places the baby into the ship, quietly saying to Kal-El, Forgive me. As Jor-El and Lara embrace, preparing for the end, they lament that while they have given their son a chance, they will never know what became of Kal-El. And the small ship rises from the planet on its lonely, desperate trek to the stars as the fire and the quakes engulf this world. And in the silence of space, the ship escapes the final violent explosion that claims the life of Jor-El and Lara. Krypton dies, sending with it a lone green piece of the planet which embeds itself into the Starcraft that will either be Kal-El's lifeboat or his tomb. And the ship travels far from the death of Krypton across countless stars and untold time. And as it speeds towards its destination, life support fades, power cells begin to deplete, but still it reaches Earth and begins the speedy ascent onto our green planet bathed in our yellow sun. Faster and faster, the ship's journey to Earth becomes the reader's journey as the scene seamlessly fades into a speeding bullet. And we see brief scenes of a life as the bullet passes through time in a beautiful metaphor. The ship crashes and is found by a kind couple in Smallville. The baby grows into a boy who can lift a tractor, and then a teenager that can leap over a barn, and still the bullet takes us through time until it hits a target. The invulnerable hand of a boy who has grown into a young man, a man protecting another man 25 years later in West Africa. The man Kalel saves is Kobe Asaru, and his bodyguards surround the young Kalel, even as the would-be assailants make a getaway. The young man's belongings are searched, and he is identified as Clark Kent, a strapping man with Jor-El's strong, strong blue eyes and dark hair. Clark is working for the Ghana Dispatch and assures everyone that he meets Mr. Osiru no harm as he slips the bullet into his pocket. Kobe greets Clark as a friend and introduces him to his sister, Abina. Clark has come to listen and learn, not just as a reporter, but as somebody who wants to understand the conflict that Kobe is involved in. So Kobe takes Clark to a local watering hole. Kobe is an activist on behalf of the Giri tribe, long subservient to the Taraba tribe, to the point of subjugation. Kobe wants the Guri tribe to embrace their heritage and not to have it rewritten in the history books. But he is facing more and more resistance from the Taraba tribe. And as Clark talks of his distrust of masks, the bar is suddenly attacked by a drive-by shooting, wounding several patrons and sending Clark into action. Kobe is rushed out of the bar with Clark blocking the hail of bullets and then joining Kobe in the back of an escaping van. Once enough time and distance has been made, and Kobe explains that his radical actions are viewed by the Taraba tribe as, quote, forgetting his place, unquote. Provoking such attacks, the issue wraps with the van heading back to town to check on the wounded. So, beginning the notes for the first issue, starting with the cover that I mentioned earlier, while I am usually lukewarm with Lionel Francis Yu, his style works here, and for the oddest of reasons. The cover delivers, at least in concept, a very generic Superman image as the Man of Steel flies towards the reader with Clark Kent in the background grabbing his glasses. That's the basics, but it is the colors and use, um, for lack of a better word, grainy style that separates this from just another generic Superman pinup. 
The color palette is made up of darker, muddier earth tones and used light sources are in the oddest positions. And it creates this idea, at least subconsciously, that you know exactly what you're looking at until looking closer and then your expectations change. That is what the story as a whole does. It makes you believe that you fully know and understand what is happening, like it's familiar, and then it yanks those expectations away. And the result is a modification that may not be a complete 21st century reimagining, but more of a variation on a familiar theme. It's kind of the reverse of hearing elevator music versions of a, of a rock song. You know the tune, but the instruments make it a new beast. Normally rock to elevator music is sad, this would be the opposite. Luckily, this is not elevator music. Let's jump into the book itself. With page one, it's made... Let's jump into the book itself. Starting with page one, we are made just how clear our expectations need to be recalibrated as the scene is the rocket leaving the exploding planet, and then plunging right into the sun. It's a fake out. And the first time I read Birthright, I took it as shock value, but that's not what Wade is doing. Not at all. He's telling the reader that in no uncertain terms, we are not always going to be on the same metaphorical page that we think we are. Also, the design of the rocket plays on this familiar yet different theme. First off with the color. The body is yellow, with red fins that seem to change alignment depending on what the ship is doing. It's almost alive. But we are used to a blue fuselage with red fins. And here we are, still in line with Superman's three main colors, but almost inverted. And the design plays with our minds by crisscrossing the silver and bronze age designs with the burn era birthing matrix. It's at once a pedestrian design that is made alien more so by the floating detached orb at the tip. It's just a great shot. It's a great design. And really with this version of the imminent destruction of Krypton, we are given a situation that is far more desperate and emotional than what we have seen before. These scenes and the way they play into what we will see of Kal-El's journey are the underpin of Birthright and the main element that distinguishes it from other iterations of the origin. I mention this because for me, within a small number of months, very, very close, almost back to back, I read this, Superman Earth-1, and Secret Origin. In fact, I read them so closely together that a lot of the elements of the three blended together. It got them confused a little bit. However, this part, this element, stood out amongst the three and, and, and made this one a very clear leader. We are used to seeing an assured, confident Jor-El, who has made precise calculations to get his son to Earth. Now the trek is shown as a perilous journey and one where the odds are stacked up against the child surviving. Heck, the odds are even against the rocket making it out of the solar system. And Jor-El is scared to death of Kal-El dying alone in space and suffering. And this is a very real possibility. Never before has the simple trek from Krypton to Earth been presented as such a real danger and the completion such a miracle. All of this is happening on a Krypton that is far from the antiseptic Krypton of the John Byrne and the utopian Krypton of the Silver Age. And really, when we get the brief history of Krypton on the following pages, it is paced so well and the right details brought into focus that this becomes the antithesis of the 80s Krypton. Byrne and also the designers of Superman the movie wanted a planet to be something that wasn't mourned, it wasn't missed. So we get a cold ice planet in the movie, a science-based, emotionless world in the comics. 
Here, we see a Krypton that blends sci-fi landscapes with lush vegetation. On page 6, we see flying cars, but there's also someone riding some sort of flying dinosaur-like creature. And the costumes on Jor-El and Lara, they're interesting, they're very space-age, don't get me wrong. But they also have a heavy cloth feel. They look dynamic in their own right. They feel like real clothes that have been worn a few times. They look a little bit worn, they look a bit tarnished, and yet they're completely alien. What isn't alien is the universal element of emotion. Marlon Brando was a fantastic actor. He played the heartstrings of moviegoers. But even he didn't evoke this much sadness, fear, or loss. We're talking about motionless, two-dimensional characters, and the downturned look on Jor-El's face on page 7 kills me. And then we get to the final panel of the page, and the rumbling begins. The fear, the gravitas, it's so clear on both Jor-El and Lara. She's been supportive up to this point, and if Laura has shared in Jor-El's fears, it wasn't evident. She's been the voice of reason, and she remains so, and the voice of support, and above all, she's been the voice of hope. But when it's clear that this is the end, Jor-El becomes quiet and somber, and Lara bears this look of fear. And we see Krypton crumbling to dust. In scenes that are rendered so well, you hear the crackling of the stone buildings and the screams of Kryptonians as they plunge from collapsing skyways. It is intense. It is visceral. And we get the true gravity of what Jor-El is going through, sending his child on a Hail Mary pass to a planet that he can simply describe as far. And the whispered, forgive me, really gave me pause. Yes, I know. I know that the first issue of a 12-part Superman tale isn't going to end with the infant dying. Logically, I know that. But it is so convincing that I found my heart beating very fast and I was scared for the baby and more so because it's presented in a vivid shot. The baby is wearing a life support mask. He has this look of fear and confusion on his face. Just imagine the sensations that he's feeling now and the sensations of space travel. The absence of his parents, this baby. This trip is Kal-El's test. And though the adult Clark won't remember it, the cries of the baby as the rocket is sealed and that last look must have made the last moments of the L's life absolute, utter hell. And then, like a bookend, now we are leaving the planet. It mirrors the first page, but now we're filled with emotion. We have not only loaded the rocket with the baby, we have put our emotions into that, that character and into that rocket. And that false start got our attention, and while we were sitting up paying attention, Wade tore our hearts out, showing us raw emotion within the familiar that we really have never seen before. And like the standing canon origin of the time, Man of Steel, a small piece of kryptonite embeds itself in the rocket. Which is odd, because that would help the revamp origin one day become canon, without completely destroying those earlier issues. And then we spend pages 13 through 15 with Kal-El's trip. It gives us a tangible feeling of what a long space journey would feel like. Before beginning a wonderful transition on page 15 of the ship, speeding into Earth's atmosphere, changing to a speeding bullet, and over the collage on pages 16 and 17. This is a collage that does not appear in the Birthright trade paperback. And that leaves me with a few mixed feelings. The collage depicts familiar scenes, such as Jonathan and Martha finding Clark, Clark leaping over the barn, and Lex Luthor 
While I like the image, if I didn't have the original print copy of this, I would have never known or missed it. Now that I know it's omitted, well, I feel cheated out of two pages. But if I'm being honest, they were superfluous. It reads better as a smooth transition to the Africa segment of the issue. And just a quick note here, I just want to point out, we are more than halfway through the 30 pages of story when the adult Clark Kent finally appears. The magic of that, you wouldn't notice it unless you were looking for it or if I didn't tell you. So you're welcome for that. And though we know and recognize Clark, we're immediately dropped into unfamiliar territory. A, we're going in the middle of a scene. We don't really know what's going on here with the assassination attempt. And B, while Man of Steel showed us the transition from infant to young man chronologically, there was also a gap when Clark was traveling the world finding himself, and we're dropped into what could be that gap. We are, however, given all the pieces to put together. The fact that Clark has a press pass from the Ghana Dispatch, he can speak the language because, he, as he says, he's a good listener. Those who may not be familiar with the Superman story, if this might be their first one, they're also clued in to the fact that this is the infant when the tablet that Laura put in the baby's rocket makes an appearance. Bear in mind that this book was released well before tablet computers became prevalent, which makes that tablet a pre-iPad device, but I'm sure it still syncs well with iTunes. Now I struggle to follow Superman when he is taken out of the urban or space environment, since those are the familiar trappings, those are what I equate with Superman. This was a segment that I had to push through, not because, not because Superman isn't in it, but also because it's a dense socio-political struggle. However, I ended up liking Kobe immediately, and I get where Superman would have a broad worldview based on his travels. The political aspect of the conflict that Clark finds himself embroiled in is based on the real-life Burundian Civil War. Now, this conflict was between the Hutu and Tutsi tribes, and they really basically they have the same relationship. And I'm not going to go very deeply into that conflict. But I do invite you to check it out, if you get the time. It is a very interesting topic, and very tragic. Now moving to pages 23 and 24, Clark explains how he has been able to cobble enough experience and college credits to get his bachelor's degree. I love this, because with this background, with a real journalism experience, with that degree, it is now plausible and realistic for Clark to walk into the Daily Planet and get a job. Plus, the exposition is ingrained in the dialogue. So it's not heavy-handed, it doesn't stop the story to tell us this detail. It seem, it's, it's seamless. And as I mentioned, we see that Clark has these extremely vibrant blue eyes, and that he dislikes masks. Both of these will go on to help form the alter-ego versions of both Clark Kent and Superman. Now, if I have one complaint about the issue, it is, it ends abruptly. There is the drive-by, and suddenly, as we're heading back to town, hey, issue's over. I don't get the feeling that Mark Wade is writing for the trade, I'm not saying that. But I do feel, having experienced both versions, that the trade is a smoother read, because it seamlessly moves to the next story. In fact, I wouldn't know where one issue ended and the other began in the trade if I wasn't comparing the single issues with it. Admittedly, Birthright flew right under my radar when it was coming out, so I didn't get the series on a monthly basis. I didn't get it till much later. So I can't attest to what it would be like to read this monthly, 
but I imagine this would be very, very frustrating. Especially stopping the Clark portion of the story before it really got cooking. However, the exemplary Krypton sequence was well worth the price of admission. And I'm kind of torn. Realistically, it could have maybe been expanded upon to occupy the full issue. But that could have ended up being overkill, so I'm just going to be happy with what we got. And really, the first issue is the biggest turning point. By the time you get here, you are either in on the story or you're out. We've presented this alternate version of Krypton. We've presented Clark Kent in an African situation. If you're like me and you do stick to Superman in the urban or space environments, his normal background, this could have been a deal breaker. Now, I pushed through and it's a clear enough statement to, as to the tone and direction of the series. That you can jump on board to go back to the regular Superman continuity. Those books were on stands at the time. For us, though, we are in. We're in... To, we're in it to win it. So right after this podcast promo, we're going to come right back to look at Superman Birthright number two, and later an episode of Superman the Animated Series. So I will be right back after this. In the decade of the 1930s, even the great city of Cleveland, Ohio, was not spared of the ravages of the Great Depression. In a time of fear and confusion, a character emerged that would entertain and inspire millions of children and adults alike. He began not as flesh and blood, but as a simple line drawing. His comic book adventures thrilled millions around the world. The magic of radio gave to his name a breathless signature and sound. Then with television came a whole new generation to idolize his exploits. In the 70s, the world believed a man could fly. In the 80s, he was reborn in the comics. And the 90s saw his death, rebirth, and marriage. In the 21st century, he returned to the big screen and saw his origin changed and retold on several occasions. Through the decades, he has gone by many names. The Man of Tomorrow. The Last Son of Krypton. The Man of Steel. His strength is incredible. His name is legendary. His battle is never ending. Faster than a speedy bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. My name is Michael Bailey. I host an internet radio show called Views from the Long Box. Superman is my favorite character of all time, and in 2013, he is turning 75. Because of this, 
a large portion of the episodes this year will be about the Man of Steel in a series I'm calling Superman, Superman at 75, the celebration of a legend. I'm going to mark Superman's birthday in fine style by examining all aspects of the character's history, from the comics to the movies to the television series and beyond, both alone and with the best and brightest of the podcasting world. It may not be every episode, but the bulk of views in 2013 will be all about the Man of Steel. He is the first and greatest superhero of them all, and he deserves no less. Superman at 75, the celebration of a legend. A series within a series, and the biggest birthday card a fan can give his favorite hero, only at Views from the Long Box. Views from the Long Box is a Fortress of Bailey-Tude production. New episodes drop every other Tuesday over at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com and for this series, over at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome back. Now we continue the journey with Superman Birthright number two. This was cover dated October 2003, but was on sale August 6th of the same year. This is entitled Heart of Darkness from the exact same creative team top to bottom. With a narration in the form of Clark composing an email to his ma, we see some excellent scenes of Clark flying and interacting with the African wildlife. Flying in the air above a pack of zebra and wrestling with a lion. A lion! He has also figured out, at long last, how to activate the tablet, and he sees the history of Krypton through holograms, though he doesn't understand it. He doesn't know the language, as Lara actually predicted. We also learn that among Clark's vision powers is the ability to see a sort of aura around living things, and when they die, there is an emptiness. This has led Clark to be a vegetarian. It's clear that Clark is lonely, because every time he has made friends... A situation arises where Clark has to use his powers. This scares them and drives them away, just as his pa suspected. And as we're learning this, Clark lifts a fallen tree off of a beast and is spotted by a local native, once again afraid of this being that they don't understand. Clark leaves, and later, Clark interviews Taraba representative Kibile, who reiterates the mentality that Kobe and the Geary have forgotten their stations. As Clark is listening, an aide brings the senator a phone, and Clark recognizes the aide with the scarred face as one of the drivers from the drive-by shooting last issue. Clark returns to Kobe and tries to dissuade him from a planned protest march. Instead, Clark arranges a press conference to allow Kobe to tell his side of things. But as Kobe is speaking in front of a bunch of press reporters, Abina alerts Clark of a danger. Verified by his telescopic vision, the Taraba are burning down the Guri village. Clark has no choice but to reveal himself despite the years of his father's warnings to hide this side of him. He swoops Abina up and flies them both to the Geary village, where he proceeds to tear into the saboteurs, smashing their weapons and their vehicles. But as Clark is saving the village, Representative Kibile makes a move, and troops approach Kobe to arrest him. In the confusion with the troops, the aide that Clark saw earlier is able to stab Kobe fatally, something that Clark is made aware of once again using his telescopic vision. He flies a thoroughly terrified Abina back to the press conference and smashes the vehicle that the saboteur is trying to get away on. 
After destroying the reporter's cab camera, Clark takes the aide and forces him to confess who he is working for, in front of the Kress who go crazy as the finger points to Keybile. Clark then rushes to Kobe's side, where he is being comforted by Abina, but it is too late. And Clark watches helplessly as the aura surrounding Kobe fades into deep black emptiness. In the aftermath, Abina is assigned to Parliament to continue Kobe's legacy from within, and at sunset, she and Clark stand by Kobe's grave. Clark tells her he won't stay, and she assures him that the Giri will not tell his secret. And Abina asks the inevitable question, why couldn't Clark save Kobe? Clark tells her that he had no choice. He saved the people that Kobe would have wanted him to save. But the world is a better place for Kobe having been in it. And the scene changes from an African sunset to Smallville, Kansas three days later, where Jonathan Kent is unloading bags of feed from his truck and realizing that he's a bit long in the tooth for this kind of work. Luckily, Clark arrives by surprise and finishes the job at super speed. Jonathan and Martha are elated to see their son, but he has this idea. Having seen Kobe's example and the videos from Krypton, Clark feels that he is failing to put his abilities to good use. He talks of the symbol from the tapestries in his ship, and that they meant a lot to the planet, and they should mean a lot to him. Clark leads his parents into the barn, where he pulls out the old ship, and he also pulls out the red, yellow, and blue tapestries. Tearing the thread with his heat vision, he asks his ma if she still sews. And with that, we close on the second chapter of Birthright. But we begin my notes for this issue, which are admittedly lighter than in issue one. I simply want to say that the, t the first two pages here, featuring Clark flying in the African desert, are, in a word, gorgeous. Despite my preference for the urban or space environments, these shots are breathtaking and really warm me up to that environment and Clark being in it. Now, the bulk of my thoughts are linchpinned on page three with Clark talking about the aura he sees around living creatures. This and the resulting vegetarian aspect were controversial. Now, mildly so, but it was a dividing point amongst fans. And both of these were part of Mark Wade's contribution to the Superman 2000 pitch. A lot of fans were put off by Clark being a vegetarian, which I thought was odd, but let me clarify something on that front. Having read the pitch, it states clearly that this is a decision that Clark makes for himself. He doesn't pass judgment on meat eaters. He doesn't push his choice on others. He's not doing PETA-style protests. That's important to note. This isn't Mark Wade making a statement about being a vegetarian. I don't even know if Mark Wade is a vegetarian. But it's something he saw in the build of the character based on how Superman saw other life forms. And the aura aspect. Okay, I'm, I'm not a fan, but it doesn't put me off. It's one of those things that I could really, really do without. It brings something of a spiritual aspect to Superman's powers. But, once again, I don't really take it as a statement of faith or of a soul, anything like that. For me, my observation, it seems more of a, a science. It's more of an extension of the vision powers, which might appear natural to some, but then again, I usually don't put a ton of stock in Superman's vision powers. I can take them or leave them. It's odd, though, for how much was put into the first issue, giving us a compressed, speedy run across 25 years... This issue was more introspective and decompressed. It took a lot of space for Clark to tell us his inner thoughts. And here's the trick. We heard none of this in issue one. 
The first issue was all external in terms of Clark. And the outer elements of the character as we meet the adult Clark is the exact same context as a, as Kobe and Abina meet Clark. Now, and only now, do we get to know Clark Kent. And within it is the context of Clark flying. So we get more powers in this issue than we did last, and we get inside Clark's head, and Clark is watching the holograms on the, t on the tablet. If I weren't in a position to be looking at this book in depth, with a critical eye, the subtlety would have completely passed me by. And once again, we think we are in the expected and the rug gets pulled out from under us. A very clever narrative. And the narrative device of Clark writing an email to Martha was genius. That was the piece of the puzzle that made the inward stretch seamless. And while most of the socio-political stuff plays out well, a bit of a Bond movie or like an Argo-style thing, the issue comes alive for me on page 15. This is where Clark literally swoops in on fire, literally on fire, with from the Trabba's flamethrowers, and he looks frightening. And in the state of mind Clark is in, that should really be the case. He simply tells the terrorists, leave. Now. And then there's the money shot, a full page splash on page 16, in which Clark smashes a Land Rover into the side of a cliff. It's an update in homage to Action Comics number one, but strikingly different enough to communicate that this is not 1938. And to come back to the point earlier on page 22 when Kobe passes away and his aura goes out. I may not like the concept of the aura, but it is effectively used here to make Kobe's passing a beautiful, a beautiful scene. It's not as strong um, as the Jor-El Lara emotions, but it is still moving. Also, touching on page 24, uh, in which Clark and Abina say their goodbyes, Kobe's tombstone reads, A Charge to Keep, which shows just what an impact Kobe had on Clark and the concept of a never-ending battle. It's really conveyed through Kobe's cause being passed to Abina to carry on. Very, very understated, very, very subtle. And while I may not be accustomed to Superman in a landscape like Africa, I'll be darned if it doesn't look absolutely stunning. It's just a breathtaking sight, especially the sunset here. And then to the Kent Farm, a familiar sight, but once again, given a bit of a swerve on our expectations. No, definitely not on Jonathan, he's still the same. But Martha is a bit more spry, she's an alien fanatic, and she's spending a lot of her time online, working on web stuff. She's not putting around the house making pies, that's for sure. But I have to call foul here. Sorry, I'm just going to have to call it. Uh... For as much as this miniseries was compared to Ultimate Superman, comparing it to Marvel's Ultimate line, Martha smacks of Bendis' Aunt May update within Ultimate Spider-Man. Sorry, I have to call it. Same character, it's the same means of update. But overall, a fine transition issue, but there is a part of me that wonders if the structure of the story could have been stronger if the first issue was Krypton, the second issue was the African segment, and then the third issue we get to Krypton, if we're going to decompress it that much. But you know what? I'm not going to second-guess the professionals, like I do every episode. <laughs> it's a very uncompressed, lighter issue, but a lot got laid down on the table, including Clark asking about Lana and learning she up and left and nobody has heard from her for years. And Clark also asks about Lex, running his hand along an empty spot on a wall where the picture once hung. Tracks are being laid, and I'm excited to come back this to this next week. I hope you are, too. For now, that brings our birthright coverage to an end until next week, but it's time to jump back into Superman the Animated Series with a very lively episode.
This week's episode of Superman the Animated Series is Double Dose, which aired on September 22nd, 1997. It was written by Hilary Bader and directed by Yuchiro Yano, which I probably just butchered. In addition to our normal cast, we have Joseph Bologna as Dan Perpin, Brian James as Parasite, Lori Petty as Livewire. Yes, this is a Parasite Livewire team-up episode. Can you guess who betrays who? Because that's kind of inevitable, right? Anyway, the episode itself. At a secure facility, a janitor named Danny sweeps the floor, oblivious to the world with his blaring music on his Walkman. He makes his way to a secured section where no electronic devices are allowed, an area that houses Livewire. But he sneaks his Walkman in anyway. Livewire gets his attention and asks to hear some of Danny's music, but he tries to ignore her. Eventually he relents and then lets Livewire listen to a bit of his tunes, unaware that she can siphon the electricity from the batteries. Unaware just doesn't care. So Livewire uses that to break out, shocks Danny, before turning into electricity and making a daring escape. Later, Inspector Turpin is giving a press conference concerning the escape when the villain herself shows up, planting a big, shocking kiss on Turpin's face. Once again, Livewire and Superman get down to fighting with her electrical attacks taking out a lot of Man of Steel's juice. But no matter what Livewire throws at Superman, he keeps fighting until he uses a fire hydrant spray to short Livewire out. It's enough to send her running. But before she goes, she leaves Superman with a warning that she will be going for him. Meanwhile, the parasite sits in Stryker's Island where he's watching a well-earned big screen TV when Livewire appears on the screen and asks him if he would like to have some real laughs. And we fade to commercial in a few notes. To start off with, Danny the Janitor. An interesting mirror of Rudy when we first met him, pre-Parasite. It's not a coincidence that Danny responds to the name Stupid, though, when Livewire calls out to him. Why would you carry an electronic device into an area where a villain can use it to fry you? My tunes aren't worth that much to me. And there is a huge sexual undertone to the episode, almost blatant enough that older kids will easily catch it. Now, toddlers, younger kids, first, second grade, uh, it's going to fly right over their heads. Things like Livewire telling Danny that she needs a little music to get into the mood, right over the head. But an 11 or 12-year-old who's kind of aware, they're going to be giggling like little schoolgirls. However, it does remain on the line of very tasteful, and it's played off more as an in-joke than shock value, no pun intended. And how can anyone get mad at Dan Turpin? Especially with the Jack Kirby version we have here. I expect Terrible to just start fist-fighting someone at any moment. Maybe not so much when he's getting an electric kiss from Livewire, but you get the idea. This was definitely a fight-oriented episode, with a lot of good setups. It's a straight revenge plot with a villain team-up. However, it ends up being a lot of fun, and the big punches are rightfully saved for the episode's climax. The first fight with Livewire serves to set the mood. And I love that we see Parasite with the big TV still watching the David Letterman style show we saw him watching last time. Very good setup for the first act. Let's see what happens in Act 2. Livewire convinces the Parasite to seek revenge on Superman and then frees him from his cell. She also decides to shock nearly every male inmate on the block on her way out as they whistle and ogle at her. Parasite uses his absorption powers to procure a boat and learn how to drive one. And Livewire says she'll meet him on the other side of the island. She doesn't do boats. On the mainland, Lois and Clark are buying hot dogs in the park 
when sirens from Black... Not Blackgate. From Strikers Island begin to call out in the distance. Clark spots Parasite from a distance and changes into Superman, picking the Parasite's boat up and beginning to fly him back to the island. But Parasite jumps out of the boat and absorbs a shark's powers, so he and Superman can do a very short battle underwater. But in the middle of the battle, Parasite escapes thanks to a nearby pipe. Then Livewire and Parasite meet up in a hidden subway office. I guess these things are hidden all over the place in Metropolis? I don't know. However, Parasite tries to steal some of Livewire's power, and she begins throwing bolts of electricity at him, declaring that no means no. And she leaves him befuddled, but reminds him to stay charged so he can drain Superman of his powers, and then she can zap him when he's at his weakest. Once again, the sexual subtext is present, as we fade to commercial, but this time a bit more blatant, with Parasite constantly trying to sneak a touch. Yeah, it's played off, and correctly so, as him wanting her power, but he's been in a prison cell surrounded by male prisoners. I'm just saying. And those male prisoners react as expected to a shapely female form walking down the aisle. However, I'm left with the first of two big logic questions, as Livewire tells Parasite that she doesn't do boats, looking at the water. So how did she get off the island, and how did she get off the island? Sure, I can no-prize it, and it's not a stretch to say that she just followed the electrical cables, but it still made me cock an eyebrow. And a big surprise on the standards and practices front when Superman lifts the Parasite up in the boat and the Parasite fires a double-barrel shotgun through the bottom at Superman at point-blank range. Not sure why I'm always surprised at this, given the violence of an average Bugs Bunny cartoon with Elmer Flood slinging guns all over the place, but it gets my attention. I do wish we'd gotten a little bit more of the underwater Parasite-Superman battle. It was really cool. And then we get the blatant message of Livewire saying no means no. It's not that I disagree with the message by any stretch of the imagination, but it does feel like Parasite's attempting a bit of Pepe Le Pew-style rape. And in the third act, things really get going, so let's get into that. We come back to the Daily Planet on a rainy, stormy day, with Lois and Clark looking at the window, and Lois decides to head over to the SCU to try to get an interview with Maggie Sawyer, get some more dirt. And when Lois puts on a plastic poncho, Clark gets an idea. Elsewhere, Livewire and Parasite break into an electric power station where Livewire juices up for the big fight. Parasite once again tries to steal her power and once again gets shocked for his trouble. Guards rush into the room, but Parasite takes care of them and then Superman shows up. But Livewire's bolts are having no effect on him. In fact, when Parasite tries to absorb his power, the villains suddenly realize Superman is coated in some kind of clear plastic. Parasite tries throwing objects at him, including a CO2 tank, which explodes right over Superman thanks to Livewire's electrical boats, and this freezes the Man of Steel and destroys the plastic covering. This gives Parasite the chance to absorb Superman to the point of weakness, and then Livewire prepares to deliver the fatal blow. But Parasite changes the plan and grabs Livewire, absorbing her power. He wants them both alive so he can continuously feed off of both of them. In the confusion, Superman slips away, but Parasite pursues the weakened last son of Krypton. Finally, Parasite catches up to Superman, who throws a water cooler at Parasite, shorting him out a bit, but not enough. Parasite begins flinging electrical bolts at Superman, who grabs a mop. Yeah, it doesn't do much good, but a bolt of electricity sets the mop aflame, which Superman uses to set off the sprinkler system and completely short out the Parasite. And with the villains powerless and defeated, the SCU comes to take them into custody. 
Superman bids goodnight to Dan Turpin, saying it's a good night for flying before taking off into the starry sky and ending the episode. Now, here is the bigger of the logic questions. I said I had two. It's a rainy, stormy night. But Livewire and Parasite simply walk into the power station. How can Livewire travel in the rain if she shorts out in water? Does that still apply to her if she's traveling along the electrical wires? I'm not sure. I'm going to set that question there. If you have ideas, email me at mail at supermanforever.com. And why do the security guards suddenly have laser weapons when Parasite fired off a shotgun just a few minutes ago? So, what next? Parachutes exploding or coming out every time a plane explodes? And yeah, the plastic suit bothers me. The plastic coating. Because, A, how does Superman breathe and talk? Ooh. And B, it's a little too much like a full body condom, and no, I don't think it's more sexual undertones, but the suit was a bit unnerving for the claustrophobic like myself. And the Parasite's betrayal. Yeah, we saw it coming from the moment the two shared the screen together, but give Rudy some slack. Villain team-ups have to mean betrayal, always. Otherwise, the villains really would win the fight. And the final fight, speaking of, the weakened powerless Superman was excellent. It's a great way to level the playing field without the overused kryptonite. And we see that Superman using that spit-curled noggin of his. I dig that. I dig that a lot. It's a solid fight episode all in all, but not a lot on the character front. A ton of good fight setups and great climax. It makes it an entertaining episode, but Laurie Petty's voice is more grating than usual. And beyond the final fight, the battles are short-lived. They only serve to prime up the action and then leave us hanging. It's a good middle-of-the-road episode, enjoyable, but you're hungry for more when it's over. Yeah, see what I did there? And that ends us to the end of this laborious episode. Seriously, with all the technical mishaps, this was the hardest episode to complete so far. From DVDs not working, to deleting a full recording by accident, I'm just hoping next week is back in form. But until then, I am J. David Weeder saying keep on fighting the never-ending battle. Superman Forever Radio is a Nat World production. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, where you can leave a review. The show's episodes and extended show notes are available at supermanforever.com, where episodes premiere every Sunday. Episode postings can also be found at the supermanhomepage.com and at supermanpodcastnetwork.com, where you can find a wide variety of quality Superman podcasts for your listening pleasure. And episodes are also available on Stitcher Radio. Email is always welcome. The address is mail at supermanforever.com. You can friend and follow the show at facebook.com slash supermanforeverradio. And David is also on Twitter with the handle at superdaveweeder. Weeder is spelled W-E-T-E-R. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not gain profit from the images or related properties of DC Comics or Warner Brothers Entertainment. Superman and all related characters are copyrighted properties of DC Comics and Warner Brothers Entertainment. All music and sound clips are used for entertainment purposes only and copyrights remain with the copyright holder. No infringement is intended. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. As always, thank you so much for listening.